Welcome to Psychopaths and Sociopaths. Today we're going to go over the man that virtually killed 30 people plus more, but had been not documented. Uh, he ran two escapes uh, through the time frame of 10 years plus. We don't have any kind of documentation saying otherwise because he died and ended up uh, not going over uh, all of his killings. Uh, also known as the charming serial killer, Ted Bundy. Now, and it's self-admitted the most cold-hearted son of a bitch that you'll ever meet. Oh. All right, he admitted that. Well, that is his minutes on that and uh, never be uh, going over to actually show that he was. But, I mean, there's a lot of... If if you go on the other ones that we might go go over, uh, and if you want to comment, find out which one you want us to do research on and go over, we'll do that. Except for uh, Albert French, uh, Albert Fish. I will not touch that one with a ten foot pole. That guy was just disgusting. Yeah. But uh, let's go over his uh, his uh, starting home life. Yeah, born in uh, November 24th of 46. Um, his mother, Eleanor Louise Cowell, uh, she went by the moniker Louise. Um, she died in 2012, but uh, he was born Theodore Robert Cowell. And when his mother gave birth to him, she was at the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Um, a lot of controversy and discussion going on about his father's actual identity. Um, his mom probably got around a little bit. Uh, named an Air Force veteran and salesman by the name of Lloyd Marshall as his father. But when he was arrested in Washington State, the King County Sheriff's Office has his father listed as a, a Navy veteran by the name of Jack Worthington. Um, but later when investigators went to go you know, flesh that one out. They didn't find any record of anybody by that name in the Navy or the Merchant Marine archives. Um, but there was some suspicions raised that Louise's father, Samuel Cowell, uh, was the paternal father of Ted Bundy, although nobody ever, you know, went in to do any kind of testing to substantiate that claim either. Yeah, uh, basically back then in 1950s, uh, when he is actually born, uh, it was still in the stigma that if you are an unwed mother, that you basically are a piece of shit. Yeah. And uh, how times have changed. Yeah. What ended up happening was uh, the grandparent, his grandparents, ended up taking him in and saying that the mother was the daughter. And the grandfa grandparents, which one, the uh, grandmother, which is supposed to be his mother at this time, uh, had depression issues, rightfully so. For yeah. What, it, we'll tell you about reason why she might have had depression. Uh, <clears throat> basically, what ended up is she did electrical shock therapy to cure depression. And, uh, well, it... it it, it, I guess it worked because she didn't kill herself. So, uh, But at one time, uh, Julia uh, recalled awaking from a nap 
to find herself surrounded by knives from the kitchen and Bundy standing by the bed smiling. I mean, even at this time frame when he was a little kid, he was really weird. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, the grandfather slash father. We'll just go with that. Uh, Samuel. Eleanor was the grandmother. Yeah. And uh, let me see here. Uh, they lived in Philadelphia for the first three years of his life. Mm-hmm. And let's see here. Friends, family, and even young young Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his mother was his older sister. Eventually discovered the truth, even though he had uh, varied recollections of the circumstances. He told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him a bastard, but he told biographers Stephen... Uh, Stephen McLean? McCod. McCod. And Hugh Haysworth or Ainsworth, sorry, that he'd found the certificate of himself. Um, let's see here, biographer and true crime writer Ann Rule, who knew Bundy personally, believed that he didn't find out until 69 when he located his original birth certificate in Vermont. Um, but Bundy had always had, he said he, she always said, said that he'd always expressed a, like a lifetime, you know, lifelong resentment towards his mother for never talking to him about his real dad. And then uh, just kind of leaving him on to his own device, or not leading him on, but leaving him to his own devices to, to find that out for himself. So he, he really had, you know, some bitterness about that, which, you know, not to defend the guy, but, you know, I can kind of understand where he's coming from. You know, it's like, you know, you go your entire life thinking that this one other person is your dad, only to find out, you know, Mom doesn't know what she's talking about, you know. Her mom's been lying to everybody. In her, well, you know? no, the whole family lied. Well, yeah. So I mean, that that kind of I mean, you know that compounded it. So yeah, and if you go on to the fact of uh, how the father treat uh, the grandfather treated everybody, uh, throwing the kids down the stairs, kicking dogs. I mean, who? What kind of sick mofo kicks a dog or swings a cat by the tail? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, Luis's sister, the mom's sister, yeah. um, he threw her down the stairs for oversleeping. Yeah. You know, so I mean, like, this dude... He wasn't grade-A parenting material. No, no, no. I mean, he, I mean, USDA grade cut. I mean, it's like you wouldn't even use him to make Vienna sausages with, you know, <laughs> or potted meat. Dude, he he's a little bit higher than, like, a Chinese freaking menu. I mean, at least you know there's probably going to be cats and dogs in there, but still. Oh, you're so going to hear about that in the comments. Probably, okay. Okay, anyway... <laughs> So, in 1950, uh, the mom changed her surname from Cal to Nelson at the urging of multiple family members. She left Philadelphia with Ted to live with her cousins, Alan and Jane Scott, in Tacoma, Washington. Um, That's when she met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook, at an adult singles night in Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They married later that year, and Johnny Bundy formally adopted Ted, which is where he gets his last name now. Um, Johnny and Louise conceived four children of their own, and although Johnny tried to include his adoptive son in tramp, uh, camping trips and other family activities, 
Ted kind of remained distant. He later complained to his girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father, wasn't very bright, and didn't make much money. Yeah, but this guy, Ted Bundy, honestly, if you read out all of his stuff, he was egotistical. Yeah. He thought highly of himself and his abilities. And his abilities were actually, if you think about, uh, especially the escapes, and we'll describe those, uh, how much intelligence he put into planning and everything and how he was able to, like, spot on. I mean, uh, during one of his escapes, he literally charmed the, uh, the group, the search party, and they're thinking, what is even Ted Bundy? Yeah. Um, and then when, where he went to high school at, his classmates said he was well-known and well-liked. And he was classified, he was, he was described as being a medium-sized fish in a large pond. Yeah. Uh, but after high school, that's, I mean, if you look at, like, the first couple of years before he actually started killing, mm-hmm. and you would think, oh, this guy is probably, is a hero, is a great guy. He's yeah. wonderful. I mean, he worked on a suicide hotline and basically saved people's lives. But uh, in turn, it might have been just the, the fact of he's playing God. He's like, oh, no, you can't kill yourself because I haven't deemed fit for you to die yet. Yeah. Um, let me see. I mean, and, I mean, the guy was intelligent. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, that's not debatable. But, I mean, because, I mean, he, he, after graduating from high school... He went to the University of Puget Sound for one year before transferring to University of Washington to study Chinese. Um, there he got a romantically involved with, uh, by most accounts, what her name is Stephanie Brooks. He dropped out of college and actually went to work for Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. He became yeah. Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign to become lieutenant governor of Washington State. Um, That's actually a pretty good... Yeah, I mean that's bodyguard. If he's if you know he's gonna. Yeah, I mean it was one of those things. It's like, how good of you? Uh, how, how are you uh, at guarding uh, being a bodyguard and everything? I'll kill everyone. I mean, that, I mean, you either are just an incredibly smooth talker, or you you have demonstrated some kind of aptitude for that skill set. Yeah, you know. But uh, he attended the '68 National or Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Um, his girlfriend broke up with him shortly thereafter, and she returned home to her family in California um, because she cited that she was frustrated by his immaturity and lack of ambition. Uh, Let me see here. And there was a psychiatrist by the name of Dorothy Lewis that would later pinpoint this crisis as probably the pivotal time in his development. Um, He didn't take the breakup really well. Yeah, Um, because he he didn't break up with her. She yeah, she broke up with him. So I mean, and he, he didn't have that control over it. Yeah, he was a he is, well, was a very hardcore controlling person. Yeah, yeah. I you mean, know. throughout throughout the whole thing, if he didn't control it, he would get so upset. Oh yeah, you're you're very very stereotypical narcissist. You know, it's like, you know, I'm calling the shots, not you. You know, but he he went to Colorado and then went a little bit further east, uh, visiting. Arkansas and Philadelphia, where he had uh, relatives. But when he got to Philadelphia, he enrolled in Temple University. Um, And that's when he started visiting the Office of Birth Records in Burlington to try to figure out who his real dad was. 
And I think that that really, you know, where he had that pivotal moment in his development, you know, going down that road of, of uh, narcissism and, and sadic, you know, sadism, finding that birth certificate is, yeah, I heard it too, but, <laughs> but, you know, finding that, that birth certificate, I mean, that would, that would kind of put you over the edge a little bit too. I mean, well, not a little bit, it would put you over the edge a lot, you know, I mean, especially, you know, with the potential of it being like an incest position, you know, case where it's like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fucked up, you know? Yeah. Well, your dad, your grandpa's your dad and your mom's technically your aunt and your mother. Yeah, you know, so, I mean, that's the kind of thing where, you know, dudes start throwing chairs and the crowd starts chanting Jerry. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. one of those. But, uh, I mean, he, he was widely regarded as being very, very focused and goal-oriented later on when the 70s started up. Um, he re-enrolled back at, you know, University of Washington as a psychology major. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, he goes from studying Chinese and the two or three, you know, major dialects that that language involves working for, you know, as a bodyguard, getting highly involved with, you know, politics, and then, you know, going to Temple University, then going back over to the West Coast and and getting involved in psychology. Uh, He became an honor student and was well regarded by his professors. Uh, He worked at the Seattle Suicide uh, Hotline Crisis Center. Where he met and worked alongside Anne Rule, who eventually wrote his true crime and biography. Yeah, it was uh, sitting next to a killer. Yeah, the stranger beside me is. Uh, what, yeah, that's me. what it was called. Yeah, uh, she said that she she saw nothing disturbing in his personality at the time and described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. Yeah. So you know that's where he put that psychology degree to work, or that that study in psychology to work, because. They can, you know, they can break those people down, find those little chinks in their armor, and just to kind of get in good with them. Yeah, but another thing that was kind of weird, I think it was this time frame, is uh, his uh, reading list. Because usually he wrote, uh, he read uh, uh, true crime stories mm-hmm. and all kinds of stuff like that. And from what he said is uh, reading those books, he would read the ones that were the murder victim was getting uh, chopped in half and very descriptive and evil acts. And he was basically getting off on that. Yeah. And, you know, later on in the research that I was able to find, um, when he graduated from UW in 72, he joined um, Daniel J. Evans's reelection campaign, who was the governor of Washington state at the time. Um, Posing and he went kind of undercover, like as a as a political operative. Mm-hmm. So you know that whole manipulation thing. Uh, he he shadowed the opponent Albert Rossellini's uh, campaign and recorded his stump speeches for analysis. Appointed and you know uh, Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Council or committee. Really? Yeah, and so. Um, when Evans was reelected, Bundy was thought of, well thought of, and he was described as being smart, aggressive, and a believer in the system. In early '73, despite having mediocre LSAT scores, Bundy was accepted into law schools uh, uh, for both Puget Sound University, 
uh, and uh, University of Utah, the strength of letters of recommendations from Evans, Davis, and several University of Washington psychology professors. Uh, during a trip to California on Republican Party business in the summer of 73, he met back up with, the, uh, with uh, Brooks, uh -huh. the girl, girl that broke up with him. They kind of rekindled their relationship. She looked at him and was like, oh, my God. You have changed. He was so serious and dedicated, and uh, you know he was on the verge of this on, on the on the on the right there on the step doorstep of this great legal career. So she continued, or so he continued to uh, date her, or he he was dating her, and he was dating a woman by the name of Elizabeth Klopfer. Um. She was also identified by three other uh, pseudonames. Uh, depending on what Bundy book you read, it was either Meg Anders, Beth Archer, or Liz Kindle. Um, she was a divorcee from Ogden, Utah, who worked as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And, uh, I mean, even when he was initially incarcerated in Utah back in 76, I mean, that relationship really kind of was the one that stood the test of time. She stayed with him despite the, you know, the incarcerations. Um, you know, cause you, he, he kept, you're, you're talking the one that he eventually at the uh, Florida uh, court that he ended up married because some kind of weird Florida law. Yeah, I, I think it was. Uh, uh, I, I think that that was her. Yeah, but uh, neither woman was aware of the other woman's existence uh, in the fall of '73. Bundy articulated at uh, Puget Sound Law School. And continued continued courting Brooks. She flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage, and at one point, he introduced her to Davis as his fiance. So the the governor, or you know, at, at the time, uh, seventy four January seventy four, he broke off all contact with her. You know, the seventies version of ghosting. Yeah. Um, her phone calls, letters went un, unreturned. Finally, reaching him by phone a month later, she demanded to know why he had unilaterally just kind of said, eh, whatever. Why did you end it? Why didn't I get an explanation? And in a very calm, flat voice, he said, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean, and hung up. She never heard from him again. Like that, I mean, that's some cold-ass shit. I've, I've done that, but the person actually warned it really bad. Yeah. I could uh, me. I could never. I could, you know, depending on who you talk to, I'm, I'm I'm either a really great person or just a flaming asshole. Yeah, same here. But you know, I've never been accused of doing that. You know, no, I've 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 done that. But the person cheated on me, took money from me, did all this kind of stuff. And right. I was like, and I eventually give them the whole fact of, hey, can you do me a favor right th uh, right now when we're actually talking? Yeah, sure, anything, anything. Yeah, can you tell me if this sounds like a phone hanging up? Click. Yeah, right. Like, hey, you know, what does this sound like? Um, let's see here. He later explained that I just wanted to prove myself to myself that I could have married her. But Brooks concluded in a retrospective interview that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection in advance as a, re as a revenge plan uh, for breaking up with him in 68, which 
to me, makes sense because of his whole narcissistic nature. And that was him really kind of regaining control over that particular individual. Um, but by the time he broke up with her in 74, he'd begin skipping school or class at law school. By April, he stopped intending ent- entirely, and that's when women started disappearing in the Pacific Northwest. Okay. Um, so there's no consensus on when or where Bundy began killing women. Uh, he told different stories to different people. Uh, he refused to, to give specifics uh, about the earlier crimes, or the earliest crimes, rather. Um, he even confessed in some graphic detail to dozens of later murders in the days preceding his execution. But... Uh, he had told his biographer, or one of his biographers, that he attempted his first kidnapping in 69 in Ocean City, New Jersey. What is it about New Jersey? Uh, Cunningham, Cunningham was from New Jersey. Most mafia people. You know, that's where they dumped the bodies. I, I guess so. But, uh, he, but, but not, you know, he tried to kidnap his first person in Ocean City, New Jersey, but didn't try to kill anyone until sometime in 71 in Seattle. Um, he told a psychologist by the name of Art Norman that he killed two women in Atlantic City in 69 while visiting family in Philadelphia. He hinted but refused to elaborate to homicide detective Robert Keppel that he committed a murder in Seattle in 72 and another murder in 73 that inv- involved a hitchhiker in Tumwater. Um, both Rule and Keppel believed that he might have started killing as a teenager. Uh, circumstantial evidence suggested that he might have abducted and killed an eight-year-old Anne-Marie Burr of Tacoma when he was 14, an allegation that he repeatedly denied. Uh, See here, documents show that his earliest homicides were committed in 74 when he was 27, Uh, but by then, by his own admission, he had mastered the necessary skills. Uh, You know, this was before DNA profiling was a thing. They didn't have any kind of DNA profiling on any of the cases until, like, like a... 89, right, I but believe. you know, kind of like Connington, you know, who yeah. did things like he severed hands and heads to skirt, you know, to to kind of skirt the law a little bit because those bodies weren't able to be identified. Yeah, because at that time frame, all they could identify a body with was fingerprints and DNA. Or right. not DNA, but uh, uh, dental den- prints. Yeah, dental prints. and so I mean, he was leaving minimal forensic evidence whether it be fingerprints, biological, anything that could have tied those back to him. You know, you remember where Connington had left folded clothes of, you know, clean folded clothes with the shoes on top in the tubs of those hotel rooms for his victims. You know, Bundy was leaving minimal forensic evidence at the crime scenes. Honestly, okay, in my realm of thinking right now on both these cases and everything, Mm -hmm. there's one factor that... I didn't realize until just right now was the fact of if they took the heads for dental records and everything like that for the victim. Yeah. They bit the uh, victim a lot. So they left their dental print. Right. Teeth but unless the they were in the system, you know, because like with Connington's murder, uh, murder victims, a lot of them were prostitutes. So they had already had records for solicitation. So they would have been in the system. So they would have had those dental print, uh, dental records. So, but, you know, with Bundy, though, I mean, he didn't dismember his victims. You know, he just beat the shit out of them with, like, blunt objects and, you know, I mean. By ripping off nipples and everything like that. Yeah, you know, but. He didn't pull teeth. He didn't cut off hands or anything. He didn't do any of that. 
you know, he was just in it. I mean, he looked at it more of a, you know, it was hobby. more about the, yeah, it was a hobby. It was more like a sport for him, you know. And, and I think eventually it just kind of became, you know, kind of like a heroin, at, you know, addiction where it's like you just have to continually do it more and more to get that kind of a hit. And he would, he would, he would flirt with the law. And I, I think a lot of it, too, like him representing himself in court, uh, him, st- you know, orchestrating his escape attempts, uh, and even with the, the murders up into his final arrest that led to ultimately his conviction and execution, he was doing it. You know, each one got more grand in scale. And I think he did that because the adrenaline rush got harder and harder to get. Mm, yeah. You know, so he, he needed to have a bigger and bigger hit, bigger, bigger, bigger dose of that in order for him to get the same effect as the as the initial murders did. And, you know, you can tie all that back to his family life. You can tie all that back to his grandfather slash dad, you know. Well, what is that, the Cartoon Network show, Uncle Grandpa? Yeah. You know, but... <laughs> don't add us about tying Uncle Grandpa to incest, whatever. Read into it later. But... Um, you know, it, uh, you know, he, he, I mean, like, I mean, whenever, I mean, he, he was trying to figure out his style. Yeah. And I mean, they, they said, uh, let's see here, shortly after midnight on January 4th of 74, around the time that he terminated his relationship with Brooks, he entered into the basement apartment of an 18 year old girl by the name of Karen Sparks. Um, depending on which sources, she also had pseudonyms, Joni Lenz, Mary Adams, Terry Caldwell. Uh, she was a dancer and a student at the University of Washington. We'll just say UW because, you know, people that have been in that area know what UW is. Anyway, um, after bludgeoning her senseless with a metal rod from her bed frame, he sexually assaulted her with either the same rod or a metal speculum. Yeah. Um, causing extensive internal injuries. She remained un- remained unconscious for ten days, uh, but survived with permanent physical and mental disabilities. And in the early mornings of February first, Bundy broke into the basement room of Linda Ann Healy, a UW undergraduate who broadcast morning radio weather reports for skiers. He beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse, and boots, and carried her away. Um, let me see here, and then there's also, uh, I mean, in in College students would start disappearing at about the rate one per month. Uh, Donna Gail Mason on March 12th, um, a 19-year-old student by the na- uh, of uh, the Evergreen State College in Olympia, 60 miles southwest of Seattle. Uh, she left her dorm to attend a jazz concert on campus but never arrived. Um, on April 17th, there was Susan Elaine Rancourt. She disappeared on the way back to her room from an advisor's meeting at Central Washington College in Ellensburg, which is 110 miles south, east, southeast of Seattle. So he had, initially, you know, I think, I think he did a lot of, of yeah, he had a variety of victims, and, and his, his footprint, so to speak, was large. Because yep. most serial murders that, that you look at, they've got a small area that they've operated in. And if. And this is, goes on to the fact of uh, him reading the true crime stories and everything mm-hmm. like that. He had it to where, in that time frame, it was very hard. If you did crimes in one state 
and, and a, a crime in another state, it was hard to prosecute because of state lines and who gets jurisdiction and everything. Yeah. Even today, it, it is, it, we have like a small thing, but it gets to the point where they actually talk to each other a lot more to find out who can put this person away longer. Yeah. And we started, you know, and then we start seeing first reports of the infamous VW Beetle. Yeah. Um, during, uh, see, what was it? Uh, during 74. Uh, let me see here. Uh, one Rancourt, let's see. On the night of Rancourt's disappearance the other and the other three nights earlier, a man wearing an arm sling asking for help carrying a load of books to his brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. On May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks left her dorm at Oregon State University. So this is when he, you know, then that's why they classified it as the Pacific Northwest instead of just Washington, because he would cross over the Columbia River and go into Portland. Um, she went to go have coffee with her friends at uh, Memorial Union, but never arrived. Um, let me see here. And, and see, University, uh, Oregon State University, that's 85 miles south of Portland. So, I mean, he was putting in some serious mileage. Yeah. And, you know, so I don't think it's necessarily that he was, you know, profiling these particular victims i think they were just picked at random they were like targets of opportunity for him and he just looked at that as upping the challenge he would change up his his area of operations extending that footprint further and further south going east because i mean being in the pacific northwest you can only go west so far before you hit the coast but um but it wasn't until like uh 75 with his actual initial arrest after all this stuff and it wasn't like glamorous. It's like, oh, we got this. We got his uh, fingerprints and everything. We got this. What had actually happened was he was in front of a house that he was possibly going to kill the people inside. Mm -hmm. And a cop knew the people of that home and saw a weird vehicle in front and basically was doing his job was like hey i know these people uh, the parents of these uh children are out of town that's a suspicious car mm -hmm. let's go ahead and just ask that guy a couple of questions which he did he asked him a couple of questions and as soon as he pulled him over with his lights boom he ran yeah um let me see here there was a woman, uh, George Ann Hawkins. She vanished while walking down a brightly lit, and I think, and this was on June 11th of that year. So I think at this point, he really started to like tease the police a little bit because he thought it was, you know, I mean, this added to the level of sport. Um, she was walking down a, an alleyway to her boyfriend's dorm and her soror uh, sorority house, it was, it was an alley between her boyfriend's dorm and her sorority house is what it was. Um, the next morning, three Seattle homicide detectives and a criminalist com combed the entire alleyway on their hands and knees, finding nothing. After Hawkins disappeared, after her, her disappearance was publicized, witnesses came forward to report seeing a man that night who was in the alley behind the nearby dorm. He was on crutches with a leg cast and was struggling to carry a briefcase. Uh, one woman recalled that the man asked him, asked her to help carry uh, the case to his car, a light brown VW Bug or a Beetle. Uh, he later told Keppel that he lured Hawkins to his car before rendering her unconscious with a crowbar that he had 
earlier placed beside the vehicle. So it's not like he reached in, pulled it out, and gave her time to kind of freak out. I mean, it was already outside the vehicle. I don't see it as a light van, light brown van, uh, VW. Yeah, everything that I found, it was either light brown or tan. But I'm looking at the vehicle right now because they have it at a serial killer museum or something like right, that. Right, but this, these, 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 the reports that I was able to find was based on eyewitness accounts at the time. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, so bear in mind, too, they, they were seeing this in poorly lit conditions. And, yeah. you know, anytime, unless you've got somebody who has just great recall and great spatial and uh, situational awareness, anything that you kind of witness in passing unless you devote your attention to it specifically you're not you're going to you're going to miss certain details that's like you know whenever you give somebody like an eyewitness test and ask them you know if you're talking to them and you have a, an actor walk behind you okay the person that just walked behind me what color shirt were they wearing how tall do you think they were you're going to get anywhere from either 56 to 61 and you're going to get either brown blue and in some cases, you're going to get, like, gray. Because those colors, the brain, as far as, like, peripherally, when you see it, those colors are going to all resemble each other a lot. So when you're asking eyewitnesses to give them, you know, give me as many details as you can remember. And they're going to give you anywhere from light brown to tan. Some people might say blue, so, you know, as far as, like, light blue. But um, he, he knocked her unconscious with a crowbar. He handcuffed her and drove to Issaquah, which is where he strangled her before spending the entire night with her body. Um, prior to her murder, she had regained consciousness inside the car and began talking with Bundy, who recollected that she had informed him she had a Spanish test the following day and thought that I had... He said, I, in quote... She thought that I had taken her to help tutor for her Spanish test, adding, it's not funny, but it's odd the kinds of things people will say under those circumstances. So she may have been a cool, calm, you know, collected individual. She realized that she was in danger, but she didn't want to escalate it by freaking out on him. She probably tried to, like, strike up casual conversation in hopes that he would drop his guard. But, um, you know, remember that, he he studied psychology, so he he could he could he could get past that that initial defense. Theoretically, but theoretically, yeah. He stated that um, he had revisited her corpse on three occasions. Yeah, he was a, a necrophilia. necrophilia. Yeah. yeah. Um, let me see. And he did that with several people. He also yeah. he also took their heads and skulls as decoration for his home. Uh, yeah, see here, in the midst of a major crime scene investigation, see, he returned to UW the next morning, or to the alley the morning after her abduction uh, and murder. There, in the very midst of a major crime scene investigation, he located and gathered her earrings in one of her shoes where he had left them in the adjoining parking lot, departed unobserved. So the dude was like a low-key ninja. Yeah. Um you know, he, and they, they always did, say uh, that's he, like when you go into a place that you know you're not supposed to be, act like you're supposed to be there, and people will not pay attention to you. Yeah. You know, uh, so see, it was during this period, he was working in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Admi Advisory Commission, 
where, ironically, he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. Uh, he worked for the Department of Emergency Services, which is a state, state government in, agency involved in the search for missing women. Well, he was an expert. So, you know, he was kind of in on the ground floor. You know, he could steer them away from A, B, and C. And he knew. He knew what their protocols were. And, and he helped write the playbook. And, and he actually helped uh, try to find a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the, the Green River Killer, I think yeah, it was. Green yeah, Green River Killer. But uh, they didn't find uh, that killer until after he was dead. Right. Um, when he was working at the Department of Emergency Services, he met and dated Carol Ann Boone, a twice-divorced mother of two, who six years later would play an important role in the final phase of his life. Um, you know, like I said earlier, when we said that there was no consensus really as far as like official documentation as to when and where he began killing uh, he told different stories to different people. Um, you know, we had already gone over Ocean City, New Jersey. Uh, let me see here. And then that's when we started getting into the um, uh, you know the list of, of of victims that we can you know that we have definite documentation of that he was tied to. <clears throat> he was uh, in August of seventy four received an acceptance, a second acceptance, to the University of Utah's law school, moved to Salt Lake City. He left Klopfer in Seattle, and when he called, he, he would call her often. He dated at least, or, you know, while he was calling her, you know, from, from Salt Lake, he dated at least a, a dozen other women, studied first-year law curriculum a second time. He was, a, he was devastated to find out that the other students had something some some intellectual you know he that the people you know he found it as like an insult it was like a threat to him that the people that he was studying with the second time around they weren't dumb you know they they had some you know they had some book smarts and you know they were savvy as far as like they had five dollar words yeah they they had those expensive five and ten dollar words you know that you and i try to use when we talk about photosynthesis like, you know and we look like complete uh, morons but as long as you do it with conviction. Yeah, um, but if you do it with a southern accent, it doesn't work either. Well, that, that, that is not, that's not true, sir. You got to talk about that photosynthesis. <laughs> well, that's awfully magnanimous of you to allow all of us into the same group. It is, sir. Anyways, uh, <laughs> so um, he found the complete, or, uh, classes sometimes completely incomprehensible he was like it was a great disappointment to me so i mean he, he even though some of the classes and classmates showed intellectual prowess you know they almost to be like his equal he would play it off as well it's not me it's them and it's you know I, they're just beneath me you know yeah, so i he had that he had that high ego that yeah he was above he he had a god complex yes he bad. did God, and but. so it was about that time when there was a uh, string of murders that started popping up in the Utah area. Uh, let me see here. Where was it at? Because funny thing, when you're doing Word documents, if you hold the screen just for a little bit too long, it resets and then you just lose your place. Yeah, that's the reason why I ended up getting I, – I, I love having a laptop. I had, I had a lot of other stuff. 
Well, I'll do all my typing on the laptop just because I hate the Bluetooth keyboard that my iPad uses. But um, let me see here. Uh, September 2nd of that year, he raped and strangled a still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho, disposed of the remains immediately in a nearby river, or returned the next day to photograph and dismember the corpse. So that's when he started up in his game. That's when he started, you know, started with the with the cutting. But uh, let's see here. On October 2nd, he seized a 16-year-old by the name of Nancy Wilcox in Holiday, which is a suburb of Salt Lake. Her remains were buried near Capitol Reef National Park, some 200 miles south of where she was uh, abducted. But they were never found. So, I mean, I'm sure he gave them... False uh, information. Well, at first, maybe false information, but, you know, towards the end there, he probably started coming clean real quick. You know, at least for a minute. But they were just never, you know. But by the time, because you got to look at uh, yeah. But by the time area, you got yeah. like animals. <clears throat> yes, uh, I mean they probably dug those up real quick. Yeah. You know, so um, October eighteenth, Melissa Ann Smith, she's a seventeen-year-old daughter of a police chief in Midvalde, which is a, a, a big ski town outside of Salt Lake. Uh, she disappeared. Is that the one that he dressed up like a fireman? Um, looking at, she's disappeared after leaving pizza parlor. Her nude body was found in nearby. Oh no, no, no! Yeah. The other, the other one, the uh, girl got on the way. I think that was in Florida. Right. Uh, let's see here, she was found in a mountainous area nine days later. Postmortem, uh, postmortem uh, exam indicated that she may have remained alive for up to seven days following her disappearance. So he tortured her. Yeah. You know. Uh, October 31st, Laura and Amy, or Ami, also 17, she disappeared 25 miles south in uh, Lehigh after leaving a cafe just after midnight. Her naked body was found by hikers nine miles to the northeast of American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving Day. You know, thinking about this just a couple of seconds ago, mm-hmm. could you could you imagine... I mean, this is going to sound like a horrible, horrible, horrible... I, it, it, I'm saying it's horrible. But could you imagine going up and going, reading in the paper, oh, they found that body. Damn it, I wasn't done with it. I mean, it, in, in my mind, that's how he would think. Yeah, I mean, you would, you know, and then at that point he would, well, I'm just going to have to find better places to hide them. Yeah. But uh, both but could women... Could you imagine that? Because, yeah. you, I mean, going off the thing of... Uh, you know, any kind of drug addiction and everything like that, when they lose a, a place that they usually get their drugs and they are freaking out. Yeah, but he was meticulous, though. Yeah. Uh, he even went on to talk about some of his post-mortem rituals with the corpses of both Smith and me, uh, including shampooing their bodies, their hair, and applying makeup. Yeah. Because uh, they were both, uh, they were beaten, raped, sodomized, and strangled with nylon stockings. So, you know, he had he had that ritual, and then he would even, you know, he, he would, it's, you know, to a sub, and I hate the fact that I use the term you know a lot. We discussed that yesterday. Yes. But, yes, we did. Um, he even had, to, to a degree, some kind of like aesthetic standard because, I mean, he would clean the bodies. More OCD type shit. Yeah. Um, let me see here. November 8th, uh, an 18-year-old 
telephone operator, Carol DeRanch at Fashion Place Mall in Murray. Um, let me see. I mean, there is just the just he committed more murders in Utah, I think, than he did in Washington, and or at the very least, I mean, they just got more. They got more evidence of it. Yeah. Because that uh, drawing up on this time frame right here, she was technic what she was technically the last one, mm-hmm. and uh, the FBI lab assist after they found the vehicle, and. Uh, they did an extensive search, and what's really strange about the whole thing is when the cop pulled him over just to investigate why he was at the house. He he almost talk, was a, he was trying to talk himself out of the whole thing of getting arrested. I mean, most criminals do, but he was <coughs> like, "No, no, you just." You just use this hockey. I just use this hockey mask because it's cold around here. Yeah, and this is in July, right? And he started moving further east into Colorado, and I was able to find five different names. Um, their 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 ages were ranging from twenty six all the way down to a twelve year old by the name of Lynn Dawn Culver of Alameda Junior High School. She I mean, she was in junior high yeah. uh, in Poticello, Idaho. I mean, he even went into Fars into Idaho. 160 miles north of Salt Lake City. Uh, he drowned and sexually assaulted her in his hotel room, and then he disposed of her body in a river north of Poticello, possibly the Snake River. Um, so, I mean, he, you know, when we went back earlier, you go back earlier, we were talking about he upped his game with every murder because he was trying harder and harder to get that fix. And we see that with... Not so much with Vicki Jackson because she 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 felt justified in her actions, like she was doing a, the community a service. Yeah. With Cottington and Bundy, they were in it for the sport, and it became a sickness because they got they got hooked on, like that, on that rush. It was like that scene in uh, Mr. Brooks, to where after it, it was a I want I don't want to say the first scene. There's a, a couple of scenes in there. But after he killed the scene where he after he kills his victims, he's literally like hugging himself, rubbing his body and everything. And if you're watching this on YouTube, not listening in it, I literally am rubbing my body in the camera. You can check it out. Well, but because that's not creepy. That's all. not creepy at all. No sir. But yeah, and that that actually portrayed really well on the male side of how much euphoria that person gets after the killings. Yeah. Um, August 16th of 75, he was arrested by U- Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger, which is another suburb of Salt Lake. Uh, he observed Bundy cruising a residential area in the pre-dawn hours. He fled the area at high speed after seeing the patrol car. The officer searched the car after he noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and placed on the rear seats. He found a ski mask, a second mask fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. Uh, he explained that the ski mask was for skiing. He had found the handcuffs in a dumpster, and the rest were common household items. But Detective Jerry Thompson re, uh, remembered a, a similar suspect in a car description from November 74 from the, the ranch uh, kidnapping. Bundy's name in Clonfer, uh, from Clonfer's 74 phone call um, kind of 
rang that bell for him. Uh, so they, they did a search of his apartment. Police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by Wildwood End and a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful, where Deborah Kent had disappeared. The police did not have sufficient evidence to detain him, and he was released on his own recognizance. But he later said that searchers missed a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released. So he had that pucker factor kind of kicking in. He's like, oh, shit. So he went back and burned him, which you know that had to just chap his ass because those were his, that was basically his scrapbook. Yeah. So. And not to, I'm totally getting off topic right here, but as you were doing that whole speech and everything, the only thing I could think of is, uh, Cream, cream pie, uh, coffee. Cream, cream pie coffee. <laughs> it just popped in my head for some reason. It's like that. It's like that song you you hear every once in a while. And, and, yeah. And I was I was literally I was like, oh god, I gotta get back tra- on track where he's but at. But you remember we were told not to discuss that. I didn't name names and what okay. kind of. Yeah. Things was in there. See, because so, I was about I, to commit I say, that. You almost ruined the whole thing for us. I almost committed the cardinal sin by by talking about it. But uh, how does that line go? Due to the sensitive nature of your questions, and not allowed to divulge certain facts or inf- or information about that incident, had that incident actually taken place? I just say Comsec, Copsec. <laughs> or, uh, yeah, Comsec, Copsec. No, because that would lend that you have some kind of military expertise as opposed to watching movies like Apocalypse Now, which that line was from Harrison Ford's role in that movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah, see? Anyways. (laughs) So, (laughs) God. Um, I mean, he, he started to develop some of those outwardly violent tendencies towards women that he was dating. Uh, and this one, I mean, obviously he was violent because he was out there murdering and dismembering people. But uh, when he, I mean, he, he would be get questioned by people that would come to his apartment, you know, for like casual hookups or oh, girlfriends yeah. or whatever. And um, if, if at any point in time there was some kind of thing that they question everything, mm-hmm. you would get irate. It's like, mind your own business or I'll kill you. Right. Yeah. Uh, he said, uh, um, let me see here. Cloffer had suspected that he had stolen almost everything of significant value that he possessed. When she confronted him over a new TV and stereo, he warned her, if you tell anyone, quote, I'll break your fucking neck. She said Bundy became very upset whenever she considered cutting her hair, which was long and parted in the middle. Sometimes she, uh, she would wake up in the middle of the night to find him under the bed covers with a flashlight examining her body. Yeah. He kept a lug wrench uh, taped halfway up the handle in the trunk of her car, which was another VW Beetle. He would often, uh, which he often borrowed for protection. Uh, The detectives confirmed that Bundy had not been with Clopper on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor on the day Ott or Noslin were abducted, which were two other victims. Uh, shortly thereafter, Cloffer was interviewed by Seattle homicide detective Kathy McChesney and learned of the existence of Stephanie Brooks. What a hell of a way to get caught, right? I mean, first off, don't play the game if you're not willing to pay the price, right? But yeah. he gets caught being a, you know, being a basically a shitheel by the homicide detective. <laughs> you know? So 
Uh, she learns of her existence and brief engagement to Bundy around Christmas of 73. Um, in September, Bundy sold his beetle to a Midvaldi teenager. Utah police impounded it. FBI technicians dismantled it and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Carolyn Campbell's body. Later also identified hair strands microscopically and indistinguishable from the, of those from Melissa Smith, Carol DeRanch. Um, let's see here. Lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims had never met, who had never met one another would be a coincidence of mind-boggling uh, rarity. So while he was doing everything he could to go above and beyond to make sure that he wasn't leaving any traces at the scenes mm -hmm. of the crime or the scenes where he dumped the bodies. The he forgot about the car. He forgot about the car. You know, because, I mean, he's thinking to himself, I'm just going to sell the car. He thought he was in the clear. Yeah, most people that I, and this is not because, this is because I worked in corrections, not because I've committed crimes. But Thank most, you for the disclaimer. I appreciate oh, yeah. that. Oh, yeah. I need to do that disclaimer. Because <laughs> I say some really stuff that can get me in really a lot of uh, trouble at times. No, most people, when they actually want to get, when they use like a vehicle or something like that for like a uh, getaway uh, heist and stuff like that, they Molotov cocktail the uh, inside of the vehicle because it gets rid of all the DNA. Well, it's supposedly it should get rid of all the DNA and everything, or you can uh, bleach the vehicle too. Right. Fun fact about uh, Molotov cocktails is that depending on the container, the delivery device, if you use a glass container, if you throw it with your bare hand, when that glass breaks, the flash fire burns your fingerprint into the glass. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. See, I can't be a criminal. That's a, yeah, right. It's like. I, I, I did not realize that because once you started saying it, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And it's kind of like, you know, we talk about, you know, soldiers, you know, U.S. member service, yeah, service members that, that serve overseas nowadays, they're given like crash courses in metallurgy. You know, so that way they, they understand how an IED set, you know, cuts through a vehicle and how it does the things that it does. Well, even even in my time when uh, when I was doing exercises and everything like that, I had DOD come by and tell you exactly what was supposed to happen mm -hmm. and everything like that, just in case. Yeah. And that was more or less to safeguard. Like, uh, they were saying it isn't the bomb that kills you. I mean, the concussion can kill you if you're close enough, mm -hmm. but it's more or less the shrapnel and the melted metal. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let me see here. Um, February of 76, he stood trial for the Durant kidnapping, and at the, on the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, he waived his right to a jury uh, due to negative publicity surrounding the case after a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation. Uh, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault, and in June he was sentenced to one to 15 years in Utah State Prison. Uh, in October, he was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an escape kit, which was roadmaps, airline schedules, and a social security card, and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Later that month, Colorado authorities charged him with Carolyn Campbell's murder, and after a period of resistance, he waived extradition proceedings and was transferred to Aspen in January of 77. I mean, so a lot of these were, you know, I mean, they just started compounding on him because um, the 30 murders that they've got documentation of took place from 74 to 78. So, I mean, that was a pretty active four-year stretch for him. And, uh, I mean, 
when he started going, when when he got out of prison, uh, uh, it was I think he escaped. Yeah, he escaped because and he then has, he went to Florida. Yeah, well, I'll talk about the escapes right now because what had happened with the escapes? Because actually, documented that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened with the escapes? His first escape attempt. Uh, basically, this is the first arrest, and he acted like his lawyer. And as a lawyer, he is uh, he has the ability to go to the law library. Now he went to the law library. They had a uh, security there to watch him, make sure he didn't uh, escape, but. They they didn't have any gates or or, or any uh, anything on the window, so he lifted up the window, jumped out, sprained his ankle, ran for the forest. Uh, while he, he was up in the mountains in the forest area, he uh, wandered around, got lost, found a cabin, got a new set of clothes, uh, uh, a little bit of his bearings, uh, some food, and a hunting rifle. And then at that time frame, when he was walking around trying to find a way to get back to uh, to civilization, so he can probably uh, find a car to escape in, he literally was talked to by the search party looking for him. It was like, no, 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 I, yeah, I, I, I think I look like that guy, but no, I don't look like that guy. He literally talked his way out of the search party. Well, granted, the search party most of the time is actually just townspeople. Uh, most of the time, sometimes it's not security, security or anything like that. But it's to the point to where he got out of that. He was lost. He was dehydrated. He had pain in his sprained ankle and everything. He got to his car. Uh, not to his car, but to a car. Hotwired it. Ran out. And because he was driving erratically, because he was sleep-deprived and uh, deprived of uh, water and food and the pain from his sprained ankle, the cops uh, popped him and pulled him over. Mm -hmm. And and then he was arrested again. Now, that was the first attempt. The second attempt, that's what's really uh, above and beyond because he basically found out that the... uh, I don't want to say warrant, but the head uh, security guard mm-hmm. was above him. He literally uh, made a hole in the ceiling, and on uh, December 30th, he went in there, grabbed the officer's clothes, walked out, got a vehicle, went to Chicago, and he was already gone. The whole reason why he uh, was actually able to escape because it was a holiday time yeah. and they had skeleton crew. You know, at that time, now that nowadays they don't do that Mm-mm. at all because of stuff that happened like this. And he he made it all the way up to Chicago. They couldn't find him because it was a seventeen hour delay of him escaping. He made it to <coughs> Chicago, then he made it to Florida. Yeah, that. I mean. You got to hand it to it. That escape plan was actually thought out. But nowadays, we escapes still happen and everything because people are people. But that escape plan was just yeah. At the time, it was genius. Yeah. Um, let me see here. It, you know, it, it just he. 
you know, because earlier in the in our in 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 in, the, in our conversation today, we talked about how he didn't do the decapitations or dismembering. From beginning to end, you know, we had talked about how it got more graphic, and and in each one, took on a new life, so to speak. He decapitated like twelve of his victims. He'd kept, you know, he would keep some of the severed heads as mementos in his apartment. Yeah. Um. You know, most of his. You know, on a few occasions, I mean, he, especially in Florida, uh, he would break into their, into their, into, into like their rooms at night and beat them to death while they were in their yeah, beds. Yeah, very, very few of the people actually survived it, and if they did survive it, they had brain damage. They yeah. were They had a lot of problems. With, uh, one, one lady uh, ended up uh, getting ear damage in her equilibrium. I said it perfectly. Equilibrium. Thank you. E- equilibrium was so shot and she was a ballerina. Yeah. And her her life as a ballerina uh, ballerina was was another extended warranty call. Oh God. No. Oh, I know. Can't believe they hung up on me earlier. I know. Uh but basically ruining her career and everything. Mm-hmm. And she she was prominent. He he destroyed lives so easily, and he didn't care. He only yeah. wanted his. It was his satisfaction, his gratification. Yeah, who cares about everybody else's? Exactly. Story? It was, how am I going to get the next fix? And it, and it wasn't the, you know, I mean, it, it, it wasn't like he was some of your, off, you know, run-of-the-mill, off-the-street junkie. I mean, he went out of his way. He was the extreme version. Well, I don't want to say that because that's not fair to people that, you know, participate in activities like skydiving or bungee jumping. I mean, this was like, this wasn't just your stereotypical adrenaline junkie. He, there was those, that, that adrenaline rush, those endorphins that would kick in. It was just that, you know, when you, you, when you know you, you've done something and you've gotten away with it, like you had that near death experience, you know, you get that, that your body just kind of feels flushed, you know, and that's what he, I think he was going for because that fueled him until the next time. It was the almost getting caught that fueled him. Exactly. Not the getting, uh, not the But he went out of his way. I mean, he went out of his way to try to get caught. You know, he, he went out of his way to try to not get caught, but it was those simple, simple mistakes that ultimately got him caught. And his overconfidence and serious lack of, and I hate to say this, but proper planning and execution that led to his final arrest, incarceration, and his execution on January 24th of 89. Yeah, because he basically went apeshit for the last fucking thing. He basically just went off and just started trying anything to get that. He, he If you actually look at it, he literally wanted to get that high so bad. Yeah. And he would... he. He dressed up like a uh, a, uh, a firefighter and was talking to one thing, and that was another thing that got him. Uh, he would pose as professors. Yeah, evidence against him. Yeah, and and see towards the end there, he, you know, they, that's when campuses started putting out those, you know, campus wide alerts. Yeah. Be on the lookout for so and so. Be on the lookout for so and so. If you see something suspicious, report it. Kind of a thing. And the the female college students that he preyed upon started to become more and more situationally aware 
of their surroundings. Now, obviously, the ones that he bludgeoned to death when he was when they were sleeping, they, you know, you couldn't do anything about that, especially if he was like level ten ninja trying to get into their apartments or their dorm rooms. And there's not a lot left to, to you know, for, you know, there for kind of any reaction time whenever you catch a blunt object to the head and waking you up from a dead sleep and by that time you're probably just not going to wake up anymore but he even tried pulling some of his charismatic um look at me i'm handsome you know you want to like help me out befriend me even up to the right up to the end there on death row um constantly trying to charm the, the 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 jail staff or the prison staff to do favors for him, not necessarily to help get him out, but to kind of make his last time or the last of his days as comfortable as he could probably get it. And and that was, he knew he wasn't, he, he knew he was screwed. He, he was not getting out of death row at all, period. Yeah, Especially he, with the way that the media exploded. His face is plastered all over the national news. So there wasn't a lot of places that he was going to be able to go that people didn't know. Yeah, and it was basically the fact of uh, what you're saying. He was trying to get out of uh, the death penalty. He that's how he the, uh, a lot of the uh, victims were found mm-hmm. because he would give them a little bit of information and. And even then, when he was giving out the information, he was trying to be so controlling. He would give, it was like that whole, oh, I'm a wizard. I'm going to give you the information, but I'm going to give it in a puzzle box that's in a scripture that's in a different language that you're going to have to learn. <laughs> right. Here, let's, let's teach you Aramaic for a second. Yeah. But I think ultimately his downfall was his hubris because I mean incredibly most most people who have those high level and you know IQs they have that level of hubris that that arrogance that that look down your nose at at people kind of a thing they just think that they're better than everyone else and they they try to play games with people and you'll find a lot of those more highly intelligent people do tend to have that that narcissistic nature about them and I and I hate to use the term common folk, but like you see people out in everyday society. I mean, they're narcissists, you know. Um, you know, you'll see it on places like Facebook or Twitter, you know. Most of the time, those people are just trolls. But you'll find that rare diamond, you know, I don't want to say diamond in the rough, that, that rare breed, that rare example of somebody who targets individuals, uses them up, and then spits them out, and then paints themselves as the victim because the other person who was the actual victim was the aggressor because, well, they caught on to my bullshit. Yeah, my sister's like that. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I mean, I mean, hands down, my sister is that. Uh, right, I know plenty of people that yeah. are like that. So. And having, ha- having to live through that and everything like that, mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of glad for it, but I'm also, it's upsetting and it's weighing on our relationship where I don't even talk to her. But because of that, mm-hmm. I'm able to see a lot of people's bullshit to the point where, oh, okay. But it's an interesting story. They they have interesting stories. That they just train. But it's I was like, okay, let's let's just see how we'll give you a shovel, see how far you dig before I go. You know what? This is I'm done. This is ridiculous. 
you need to stop because you're lying because of this, 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 mm-hmm. and you need to stop. Yeah, you'll see a lot of, you know, narcissists that, well, occasionally you'll run across those narcissists that recognize that they have this, this issue. And they'll take steps to correct it or to overcome it. And a lot of that is, 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 is owning their mistakes or their transgressions. Um, but that doesn't happen nearly enough. You know, you know we're, we're not trying to say we, we need to have programs for that because obviously we've got counselors, we've got therapists out there. And, and that ultimately is the responsibility of that particular individual to go get that help. So instead of it having being forced upon them, because at that point you're going to set up that automatic wall of resistance. But in the case of Ted Bundy, you know we could go back all the way to his childhood. Yeah, and he started for, at for, for lack. Of, age, I mean, yeah, crazy. you know, for the sake of argument, we're just going to call him the pot, you know, the product of incest. Not to say that that is the you know end all to be all. We this, have the, no this documentation is, that actually says that. Well, that, that yeah, but we're we're not going back and saying. This is why he went down this road. Was his upbringing helpful? Absolutely not. not. Absolutely no. not. Being exposed to somebody who is that abusive, not good at all. No. You know, I feel, I, I really, I empathize with kids who are exposed to those types of personalities. Uh, you'll see it a lot of times where um, couples will get divorced and and it happens on both sides, so don't come at me, people, whatever. Men and women both get into relationships, and they expose their kids to abusive partners. Where they may not be directly, like where the kids are abusing the kids, but the, the, the people are abusive towards inanimate objects or towards the mother or father, you know, the, the, the person that they enter into that relationship with. You'll see that happen a lot, and kids get exposed to that, and it desensitizes kids to violence, to where they they don't see, you know, they, they stop seeing the repercussions. They stop seeing the the consequences of those actions or of those behavioral patterns. And it, I, I empathize with those kids because I mean. They need. They're the. They're the ones that need that help. They. Need, they're the ones that need that intervention. They need. They need something to come up. It's like, hey, this. This. This is might not okay. Seem bad right now. Yeah. But if I, there's a lot of times to where, uh, in my life, I had that to where, I, I saw, the horror that someone's going in, and until mm-hmm. the law enforcement could get and intervene and everything and they can do their job mm-hmm. I mean the only thing you can really do on the situation and it wasn't like the situation where they were getting beaten or anything like that it was more yeah. psychological and it's harder to find or, or transgressed to the point where the uh, mother was just not there all the time and sometimes it, it, it's because they have a job they're not able to pay attention to their kid right. sometimes you get just and it sounds like, oh, I have to do this because I have to be here. And it's like, no, you can stop a mass murder yeah. just by being there and going, hey, how's it going? You doing good? You want to go, uh, me, and, me and everybody else with a bunch of other kids and everything. I got, I got a couple of parents. We're going to go out to the park. 
We're going to go play. You want to do that? Yeah. And you just keep that up. You show them that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. So, I mean, they always talk about kids repeat the behaviors that they're exposed to as a child. And then we start hearing terms like breaking the cycle. I believe heavily in breaking the cycle. I really, really do. Um, Because you see it a lot where, like, for example, I totally did. Instance. That's what I was looking there for. There we go. We for instance, yes. English language. Then, you know, don't fail me now. Um, like, say, a daughter is raised by a single mom. Uh, mom, not necessarily the best of or of the examples. Brightest, you know. Well, I don't want to say brightest because I don't want to insult that that particular person's intelligence. Okay. So, let's just say they're not the best of examples because they're constantly putting themselves. In situations that are not ideal. Yeah. So whether it be, well, I'm going to leave your father and I'm going to marry this abusive person. And this person is going to be abusive to not only me, but you as well. But I'm not going to leave them because either I love him or... They're interesting. That was another thing. Or, you know, or it's, well, we're being taken care of. We're being provided for. Um, the honeypot. But then a finally, you know, when then that finally fizzles itself out, mom has this um, epiphany where she decides, oh, well, I've had enough. Leaves said abusive person. And then what does she do? She starts entering into these ill-advised relationships, you know. And so what does that do? That That sets up the child, whether it be daughter or son, sets them up by exposing them to this behavior. Because as a child, you're looking at your parent going, this is the person who I look up to. You know, I mean, kids, whether people want to admit or not, parents, as a parent, we're a role model for our our kids. You know, they look to us for direction and guidance. So we can break that. We can help them break that cycle. You know, it, I mean, we may have been exposed to abusive relationships. We, could, we, we may have been exposed to abusive marriages or, you know, codependent narcissists. We could have been exposed to all of that. But it's, it's what we do after those relationships end that really helps set our kids up for success or failure. Yeah, and, and ultimately, ourselves. I literally had to apologize to my daughter for... Uh... Uh, having someone hang out with us that was just a horrible person and luckily it wasn't for a long period of time right and I apologized to her she didn't get it she just recently talked to me about it she's like you know you apologize for hanging out with so so and so and everything I was like yeah I really am truly uh, sorry that you had to go through that right that's on me And, and she's like you know, reading up because she she, she, read, she reads on Reddit and everything. She's like, you know, you're quite possibly the best. Uh, me, you and mom are quite possibly the best parent any kid could ever have. Even if, even though you're our uh, states away. I heard my. I I, I even tell my uh, ex-wife. You know, hey. I'm glad that we are raising her right. Yeah. And my ex-wife tells me the same thing. We have a... 
it, it, it's it's a weird relationship because we love our daughter and we want her we 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 talk constantly it's like hey how can we improve this when she's down here what can i do with this is she having any problem we we communicate mm-hmm. which is sad that's what's really broke up the relationship we didn't communicate but when we're broke up we'll communicate yeah um because we want we want we want to raise our daughter not to be us and i've told her i was like uh, it's like the whole thing of me creating this. I created this, mm-hmm. and I went forward with it hardcore. Wasn't be it, it's it was bef- not because of me, and I want to be a showman, and I want everybody to. I want to put my daughter on a pathway to where her creativity and the stuff that she wants to do on a right path. If she wants because she wants to be an artist and everything like that. I was like, yeah. well, if I do this. And I get it up and running, and I have a T-shirt company. I want you to come work for me. She's like, "Well, I don't want to leave South Dakota." I was like, "Mora, all I need to do is like email me the pictures." Yeah. She's like, oh, "Okay. Well, how much are you gonna pay me?" I was like, "We'll get to that." <laughs> yeah, you know, we'll talk about it. You know, but when, like, especially with my kids, you know, we. <laughs> We want our kids to be better than we are. Always. Um, I heard my dad say that all the time, be better than I was. I want you to be better than I was. I want you to be better than I am. Any parent worth their salt wants their kids to be better than they were or than they are. Because, I mean, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, one of the biggest ones is that our kids are, are basically our direct link. They are our our they are our key to basic immortality. They carry our genetic code going forward. But it's, as a parent, we, we have that responsibility to, you know, turn loose upon the world a responsible, productive human being. So when we get situations like Ted Bundy, we look at his upbringing. Did that, did that play a big part in it? Absolutely, I think it did. Because... With uh, Simon, uh, his dad slash, or no, Samuel, sorry, uh, dad slash uh, granddad, seeing him abuse not only his mother, but his grandmother, his aunt. The animals around him. The animals around him, you know. Anything that breathed wrong direction. Exactly, and... We could call this um, you know we we can chalk it up to oh well that it was just the culture back in there it, that doesn't matter because if you look that. yeah I mean they do they they want to do that, but you can look even back then in the forties thirties forties, and fifties, if a man was being abusive and he was caught being abusive. Other men would step in and beat the ever-loving shit out of him. Yeah. I mean, they, they would put their hands on this dude be like, oh, okay, this is what you want to do? And then, you know, they would take him out to the woodshed, so to speak. Um, you know, or they would help the facilitate a safe haven for the kids, safe haven, a safe haven, a haven for, the, for, the, for the woman. Um, 
you know, one until late later on, 80s, 90s, and even in early up into the 2000s, and you know, we're now in the 2020s, but start seeing the other side of it where the women are the abusive ones. It still didn't get the recognition that it needs because we do have female serial murderers out there, case in point, Vicki Jackson, but on the, on the, on the level of Ted Bundy and Richard Coddington, well, the we're, doc- we're not, we're not getting they're They're not getting that side of the recognition because men historically have just been kind of painted as the evil ones, the ones that do the evil. I mean, I'm not trying to get into a, a gender, you know, argument, not trying to get into a, a sexism argument. And I definitely not trying to be feminism versus misogyny. I, I don't care about all of that because if we're, we're talking about true equality, the way that the feminists want equality, you put all your cards out on the table and we talk about it the way that it is. Everybody starts from square one and you end up at square, you know, whatever. You get there, different routes, but you're held to the same standard. If that's the way you want to play it, that's the way that you got to have it. We have to have that same type of recognition going both sides of the aisle. Yeah. You know, and I'm by aisle. I'm not talking about political aisle. I'm talking about the genders, you know, male versus female. And because men and women are both equally abusive to not only themselves, but the people around them. And I think if we really want to try to get a handle on not necessarily prevention, but at least getting help for the types of people that turn into the Ten Bundys, turn into the Richard Cunninghams, or, or even the, the John Wayne Gacy's of the world, we can, we, we can start to stem that down, but people just need to, they need to be aware, and they need to figure out what standard they want and keep that standard. Because if you keep changing where that, where that bar, where that measurement is, we're going to get situations like this, you know, and I mean, this may be going far off into the weeds, but to me, at least it, it, it just kind of comes across as this is, this is something that for the most part is preventable. And we're not talking about big government. We're not talking about overreach. We're not talking about oversight. We're talking about basic mental human health. decency, mental health. And not on a universal scale either. I'm, I'm just talking about making it accessible at the very least. And, and working past that stigma that men are going to be men, boys are going to be boys, and women are always the victims, and you know, women are never the aggressors. Well, we know each and every one of those rules, every one of those platitudes, those bumper stickers that they've hung on us over the course of our lives up to this point, absolute bullshit. Yeah, because a lot of the times, and I know we're going to have to wrap this up in a little yeah. bit. Uh, but a lot of times what a lot of people don't understand is they don't seek help because they think either they, they make excuses for themselves like I can't afford it, I don't have time. But a lot of the places, especially, and I hate to get a, uh, on, the, on the factor of religion, but there are some good priests out there or good clergymen will seek, if, if they find out that you have a problem, they'll come to you. And a lot of times... They'll pray with you, yes, but they'll also listen. And mm-hmm. a lot of people just need to he- have an ear. Yeah, I mean, not every cop is a bad cop. Not every, you know, not every white person, not every black person, not in, not not you know, Hispanic, Asian, you yeah, know, whatever. You go on the line. Yeah, all the way down the line. Everybody's got, you know, everybody's got, everybody's demographic, everybody's little section of the universe as racists or bigots or bad cops versus good cops, pedophile priests versus good priests. Um, 
you know, whatever. Every section of, 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 of the world, of our society, has your bad apples. Those bad apples are not um, emblematic of the rest of that section. You know, so it's like, yeah, you've got your, you've got bro vets who just want to live life and be miserable and be loud and, you know, whatever. And then you got your other vets who, you know, yeah, I served. It's not what I am, but it is a part of my life. They recognize that and then they contribute to try to help others like themselves. Or just or, people you know, in general. Or just people in general. Um, you know, you're going to have your Karens. You're going to have your Brads. I think that's the male equivalent now. Um, I, they changed that one a lot. <laughs> yeah, Karen's but, easy. Karen is easy, but the other one is Yeah. Brads or, um, or not Brads, Karens or whatever the male equivalent is. I mean, just because a white woman has a, a razor bob haircut, and asks to speak with a manager doesn't necessarily make her a Karen. Um, you know, she, she may have a legitimate concern. You know, it, it's just, you know, we, 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 we tend to stereotype people with a very wide paintbrush. And I think a lot of times people like this, like Ted Bundy, because of that broad brush that we use, they fall through the cracks and they're, they're given free reign to operate under the radar because we're so focused on the people who are more vocal, whereas he operated in the shadows yeah. for the most part. If if we stop trying to profile people into very broad definitions and we start trying to address these issues, like the childhood traumas, like the the narcissism or, or even the codependency that a lot of people have, you know, we start trying to address that. On, on the mental health level, on the individual level. You know, I think that we'd be a lot better off as a society. And we, you would find, and I know that that's a tall order, you know, especially with society being the way that it is. But I think that if we paid more attention to the individual versus grouping people together, because... What worked for this person as far as, like, counseling or treatment may not work for the next person. You know, it's almost like an individualized uh, counseling. You know, you can't sit there and say, well, your mother did this or your father did this, so I want you to do this because it worked for the last person. That may not necessarily equate apples and apples, oranges and oranges. You know, not everything's going to be equal. And nothing is equal. So when we're, when we're talking about what works for me may not work for you. If it does, great. You know, you're, you're going to have to personalize it to a degree because you know you more better than anybody else. And, and you know, the professional help that you might seek, they're going to play off of those ideas and they're going to say, yeah, that's an awesome idea. Let's go ahead and try to go this route with it. We're not going vastly off into left field. We're more going from center. We're not going to left. We're going more like center left, you know. And... I, I think, you know, bottom line, people like Ted Bundy, Richard Connington, John Wayne Gacy, I mean, while those people are there, we, we have those examples, we have the documentation, we've got the, the, the psychological profiles there. Those aren't necessarily going to be the standard to measure potential individuals against. 
because with documentation and the flow of information being what it is today, you're going to have people like Ted Bundy who did their homework. And escaped the system. They're going to, they're going to work the system over. You're going to find that more and more, as the generations get more and more, the level of intelligence and craftiness, just the, the overall cleverness, is just going to be off the scale, off the charts. So, do we need overreaching government programs to say, "Well, you need to go over here"? No, we don't need to do that. I think, bottom line, a long way around it, the way that what I'm trying to say is, is that it, it starts at home. Yeah. If it's an abusive situation, somebody. In that, in that relationship needs to stand up. They need to be the adult. They need to fix it. They need to fix it or they need to remove themselves and the kids from that situation. And they need to break the cycle of attracting people like that. Yep. So on that note, uh, what we're going to do next week, we're going to talk about Rodney L. Okay, uh, Akala? Akala? Yeah, Akala. we'll just say with Akala, yeah. Uh, Rodney Akala, that was the one that we messed up last week that we were talking about the dating game killer, mm-hmm. and this guy is actually the dating game killer. So next week, Rodney Akala, uh, the dating game killer. And uh, this is Psychos and Sociopaths, and I'm David Dickerman. I'm Johnny Skelton. And... Love you guys. Stay uh, frosty. We'll talk to you later. Heads on the swivel. Later.